Lord, we thank you again for your word. It is a precious word. And Lord, we thank you that you work through your word to fashion and shape us like Ed was saying earlier. So Lord, we ask that you would do that. We ask, Lord, that you would, uh, you would expose our hearts, that you would impart your word, Lord, in ways uh, that uh, maybe we're not ready for so that we can, re- we can benefit, Lord, in ways that maybe we don't even know that we need to benefit. So, Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we have, Lord, have not, Lord, would you give us? And, Lord, what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? And allow me, as your messenger today, Lord, to faithfully proclaim your truth for your glory. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've been a pastor for many years now, and when I was young in ministry, um, the churches that I was uh, involved in used the King James Version. And uh, one of the verses that was always um, misused and misquoted during that time was found in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. If you have your Bibles, you might want to look there. It's not going to be up on the screen. But in the King James Version, here's what it says. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And you would see this plastered like at a missions conference. You know, where there is no vision, the people perish. We need to have a vision for missions. Or sometimes, even worse than that, because in the 80s and 90s, the whole church growth movement just kind, of, just kind of exploded, and the goal was to have success in ministry. And if you want to have success in ministry, you better have a vision. And where there is no vision, the people perish. And so it, it was the basis then of a business model for ministry. And one of the problems was that they forgot about the second part of the verse, because see, in in the Proverbs, you have these couplets where the first line says something. In this case, it's, it's kind of reflected back. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And you see, what happened here is, is there was a misunderstanding of this word vision. In your, your uh, ESV Bible, it says this, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. In the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says this, without revelation, people run wild. Even the NIV gets this right. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraints. Now, it isn't that the King James Version was wrong. It's that the word vision was often wrenched out of its biblical context to speak about the importance of establishing a business-style vision for effective ministry, rather than seeing that what was at the heart of ministry was the very Word of God. In other words, if we are going to build our churches with a vision that God has for us, it's going to come through the very Word of God. And we've already seen that established in the book of Acts. Now, friends, we need God's revelation, don't we? We long to hear from God. And how did God reveal himself regularly in the Old Testament? Through prophetic visions. God would reveal his word to a prophet who then would take that word and he would speak it to the people. And if the people listened and heeded what was said, the the, the fruit of that was, was joy. It was refreshment. And friends, that is exactly what we see taking place in this passage. Paul has been faithfully proclaiming God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ in towns and cities throughout Turkey and Macedonia and now in Greece. And he labored hard, reasoning, proving, uh, proclaiming, persuading, and teaching. And and he, he does this with exhaustion. In Paul's letter to the Colossian church, Paul expressed his passion and his labor for the gospel in this way. This is Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning every man, uh, everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, I struggle with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. This was no light kind of, you know, little devotional talk. This is labor. This is toil. This is work. And now he's come to the city of Corinth, which is the capital of Greece under Rome. And he had come alone. Silas and Timothy had stayed in Berea. And when Paul actually got to Athens, he requested that they come as soon as possible. We're going to find in this passage they they ultimately do. 
but he's alone. And what Luke wants us to see here is the humanity of the Apostle Paul. Yes, he was a tough character. You read lots of things that God had him go through. He was a tough character. He has endured much uh, as Christ's apostle. But even the minister of the word needs to be ministered to by the word. Or maybe to say it a little differently, those who labor with the word desperately need to be refreshed by the ministry of the word. And the heart of our text, friends, is found in verses 9 and 10. Everything is drawing. It's kind of like this black hole, so to speak, in this text. Everything is drawing your attention to these two verses. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So when Jesus breaks in to speak to Paul, it is a word of encouragement for for Paul to continue to speak and not be afraid. And today, we want to see that as God's people, we need the refreshing counsel of his word to encourage us to not be afraid, but to keep on speaking. For those of you younger in your generation who've grown up with Disney, this is very much like Dory, when she says in that wonderful movie, Finding Nemo, when life gets you down, you know what you got to do? You just got to keep on swimming. You just got to keep on swimming. Well, here Paul gives far more important instructions. When seeking to live out your Christian life and you're discouraged, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. So much of what we are reading in Acts is repetitive, isn't it? It's just over and over again, the same things. Ed kind of brought, us, uh, to that, uh, brought attention to that this morning as he began. Paul goes into a city, he goes to the synagogue, he reasons in the synagogue. And as a result of that, there are some that come to faith. And as the church is established and, 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 and he begins to teach more and kind of brings a, a solid foundation, there's opposition from the Jews. And ultimately, and many times, the Jews then run him out of town and he goes to the next town and does it all again and again and again. So it can be a little monotonous to read over and over again. Here comes Paul. He's into another city this time. So you might just get tired of reading about it. But friends, Paul was getting tired living it. And see, Luke wants us to see that. He wants to see the spread of the gospel. That's important. But he also wants to see the the, the humanity of Paul as he is doing word ministry. So we want to begin this morning by first of all looking at ministry encouragement. Ministry encouragement. Screaming from this text is the fact that Paul had many reasons to be thankful. And he did. And so do you. And I just want to highlight, I think it's four that I have here. First of all, godly Christian friends. Did you catch that? First of all, we have Aquila and Priscilla. We're introduced to them, this couple from Rome. They're Christians, we're told, having come from Rome as a result of the emperor uh, Claudius's edict that all Jews had to leave Rome. They had come to Corinth, they set up their business, and it happened to be a similar business that Paul was used to, a tent-making business. So he he was introduced to them, he was able to work for them, so they provided not only help, uh, but they also became really, really good friends with Paul. There's also Silas and Timothy. Silas and Timothy have been part of uh, Paul's traveling companions. You may remember that Silas left with Paul from Antioch to begin this missionary journey. On their way, they stopped at Lystra and they got Timothy and added him to the mix of the team that was going out into various cities, cities ministering the gospel. They helped Paul with teaching. They helped him with logistics. They helped him really as a buffer when people were trying to, to, trying to access Paul. But when Paul was taken away safely from Berea, and some believers brought Paul to Athens, again, he said, I want you to come as quickly as possible. These were not only faithful brothers and friends, but they're faithful co-workers. He longed to be with them. And friends, be thankful for good and godly friends who are walking alongside of you on your spiritual journey. I'm sure you have had many 
who've impacted your life. I'm sure that you have people right now that are impacting your life. They're there as friends, helping you, encouraging you, stepping in with you when you're going through some trial or difficulty. God gives us one another to encourage us on our journey. Well, that certainly was true for Paul. He, he had these godly Christian friends. He has much to be thankful for. Secondly, he's thankful for good news. The good news is very encouraging, isn't it? Good news about the Thessalonian church. You see, what happened when Silas and Timothy arrived uh, from Thessalonia, they bring Paul good news. Now, we know that uh, because of the, the letter that he wrote to the Thessalonian church talking about the interactions that happened there. What he found out there was that these Thessalonians had received the word in much affliction. Of course, if you remember, that's what happened with Paul. The Jews were running him out of town right? And with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, we're told. They, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They received the word of God from Paul, Timothy, and Silas, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. These are all statements from the book of Thessalonians. And we know then that Paul is encouraged. This happened just a while back. And here's this church that I was interacting with that I was run out of town when I was in the middle of ministering to them. And look what they're doing. They are thriving. They are an example church. This was a glowing report from a young church. And that had to be encouraging to him. Not only had the gospel taken root with power, but they were encouraging other churches to live for the Lord. And friends, it's always good to hear about how a church maybe you used to go to is now thriving. Or maybe you hear, like we have done, how our friends in Ukraine, our churches in Ukraine, have mobilized incredibly, not only to provide for, for, for those that are refugees getting out of Ukraine, but now just even as they continue on in ministry, they're faithfully serving the Lord in their churches. There's a health there that is so wonderful to see. It's also good to hear about the progress of the gospel uh, and the church in places like Bolivia and Austria, all these places where we have some interaction and some friendship and some fellowship and some connection. It's good to hear from them. It's encouraging. But also, Paul heard some good news about the financial support. Because when Timothy came, what does he come bringing? He comes bringing a collection that was taken in Philippi. And now he's bringing it to Paul in Corinth. And what we're told here is as a result of that, Paul no longer has to be a tent maker. He can occupy himself with the ministry of the word. In other words, he can spend more time, not just on the Sabbath, but daily ministering and teaching and fleshing out the word for those who were there who wanted to listen. He was fully engaged now. What a huge boost. What a blessing that offering was to Paul. He has much to be thankful for. Good news, godly friends. And then I think the last thing here is gospel success. Where he was going, where he was ministering, people were coming to faith. The gospel was taking root in people's lives. Look at verse 8. This is what we read. Many of the people in Corinth, having heard Paul, believed and were baptized. In verse 7 and 8, we read about two converts, Titius Justus and Crispus. Once again, faithfulness in ministry was bearing fruit in gospel uh, conversions. There was much to be thankful for, much to be encouraged by. But friends, even when there is much to be thankful for, it is the discouragements in gospel ministry that tend to drain us, distract us, draw us to despair. Oh, you can do a lot of good things. A lot of good things can happen. It just takes one thing just to kind of distract you and, and get you out of kilter. And you know what? There's some discouraging things that are happening here too. So let's think about ministry discouragement here. If we're honest and we're looking in this text, we can see also that Paul did struggle with discouragement. There was this ongoing opposition. In Acts chapter 18, verse 20, you might want to look there, Paul arrives back in Antioch 
Well, Antioch is where he began this missionary journey. So he's kind of going full circle. He gets back to Antioch. You can just imagine one of the people that was there sending him off. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a home that he stayed with. And they're saying, hey, Paul, it's so good to have you back. How is your journey? I bet it was exciting. All those places you were able to go to. I mean, you went to Athens. You went to, to, to Corinth. You went to Ephesus. How was it? I'm sure it was great. And Paul responds, yes, it was an eventful journey. And Philippi was arrested and put in jail for preaching the gospel. In Thessalonica, I was chased out of town by an angry Jewish mob for preaching the gospel. In Berea, that same mob traveled 50 miles just to stop me from continuing my ministry of preaching the gospel. In Athens, I was mocked and scorned for preaching the gospel. In Corinth, I was opposed and reviled. Other than that, it was a great trip with a lot of success. Friends, this had been Paul's experience. Throughout his missionary journey, he knew the pressure of opposition and discouragement that would come with it. And he expresses it in his first letter to the Corinthians. And this is what he says. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. <laughs> That's not usually the Paul we think of, right? We think of Paul, he's the bold one, he's preaching, he's out there. He came in weakness, fear, and much trembling. And then early, after his conversion, well, actually, kind of, yeah, in conjunction with that, the Lord assures Ananias about Paul. And this is what he says. The Lord's speaking to Ananias, Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. He says, go... Those go speak to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In other words, Paul knew that his gospel ministry was going to involve suffering. So this wasn't news to him. He was aware of this. He understood this, but Paul was not some superhuman Christian. He was a normal Christian with feelings and emotions and fatigue. So there's this gospel opposition. Secondly, there's spiritual opposition. Now, we're not going to find this necessarily in this text, but there's a sense in which we see it from the greater context of what's going on here. If you remember when Paul arrived in Athens, he is provoked in his spirit because of the idols in the city. And where there are idols, there's certainly going to be idolatry, right? But now Paul arrives in Corinth. And it wouldn't have been the idolatry so much that he encountered, but the rampant immorality that permeated the city. Even by pagan standards of its own culture, Corinth was a city so morally corrupt that to Corinthianize came to represent gross sexual immorality and all kinds of drunken debauchery. This was the context that he was now in, having been provoked in his spirit with idols. It would be like doing ministry in a red light district. Or, or maybe going to the beaches during spring break to share the gospel. You're going to have to endure a lot. But friends, that wears on you. So certainly it was the spiritual opposition that was present. And isn't it interesting that as we reflect on the Old Testament, what were the two things that Israel constantly did that displeased the Lord? Idolatry and the pursuit of immorality. Then there's political opposition. Paul may have heard it before he came to Corinth, but certainly as he stayed with Aquila and Priscilla, I'm sure that they spoke of what happened in their life in Rome, that they ended up having to leave Corinth because Emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. But according to the Roman historian Suetonius, Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome in AD 49. This is what he says, because they were making constant disturbances in the instigation of Crestus which likely refers to Christ. In other words, it was the Christians that were being run out of Rome, along with the Jews. But it's because in Rome, although apostolic presence hadn't been there yet, the gospel was reaching there. 
People were getting saved. In fact, Aquila and Priscilla uh, presumably were saved in Rome and came to Corinth to establish their business. But there was this imperial opposition. And so, friends, Paul's recognizing this. He's seeing this. It's opposition. What's going to happen? Is it going to get worse? And fourth, there is the present opposition. In particular, we have this opposition in verses 5 and 6. I want you to see what takes place. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. See, Paul gave himself to the ministry of preaching and teaching here. He was liberated. He, he, was, he was actively laboring in the ministry of the word. He was burdened for the people there. But as Paul labored to testify of Christ and his gospel, the Jews opposed him and reviled him. Now, friends, it's one thing to oppose Paul's message. He's experienced that many times. He's had to endure that again and again and again. But this word revile can be translated blaspheme. And the idea here is it's another thing to revile someone. And I would take the hymn here not as referring so much to Paul, but to Jesus. And even if it was referring to Paul, it was the message that Paul was speaking that was about Jesus. And you know what it's like when you are living your life as a Christian and people can oppose you as a Christian, but boy, when they start talking about Jesus and mocking and scorning and reviling him, the gloves come off, don't they? That's what's happening here. Now, friends, Paul's response to the opposition to the gospel and this blasphemy of Jesus Christ is to do something symbolic and to say something prophetic. First, he shook out his garments. Symbolically, Paul was saying, I have done my duty. I've reasoned with you from the scriptures. I have proved to you that Jesus is the Christ. I've appealed to you to repent. I've warned you, therefore, I'm shaking the dust of you off of my clothes, I am no longer responsible. And then prophetically he's saying, your blood be on your heads, I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Again, he's saying, you're responsible for your rebellion against Christ. But you can imagine, this was, this was not just something he did casually, just kind of like, well, I hope no one sees this, but I'm going to do this. No, this is something you do in front of people. You've been speaking for God. They are not willing to listen. You shake the dust off symbolically and prophetically to say, you are responsible. I have done my job. You have been warned. That's bold. And friends, Paul was bold to speak in such a way, but Paul must have gone through lots in his heart to get to that place to say, I am done with you and your opposition and your blasphemy of the Messiah. So although Paul had much to be thankful for, he was also burdened down with discouragement. And friends, when the battle, uh, when, when that happens, the battle rages in our hearts. We might say things in our hearts when we're discouraged. What is the point if this is how people are going to respond? You ever felt that way? I mean, what's the point in, in speaking again? What's the point in bringing up the gospel? What's the point in pointing to Christ again if this is how people are going to respond? Or this ministry that God has given me is too difficult? Or I don't know what, <laughs> that I want to continue to endure the kind of hatred, physical opposition, and mocking from men? Can you imagine repeatedly in town after town having to endure, having to endure, having to face this? See, Paul is at a place where he's tempted. He's tempted to shrink back from the opposition and to find freedom in just being silent. Friends, do you ever feel like Paul? Yes, you have much to be thankful for. You have a roof over your head, a comfortable bed to sleep in, a vehicle that gets you around, food on your table, 
a job that brings in money that you need to survive, a church family that can fellowship with you and can encourage you, a hospital with expert doctors to monitor your health, in and out Panera, Elio's, Chipotle, go down the list, right? You have the Word of God, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the promise of the gospel. You have much to be thankful for. But you also experience much discouragement in life and in ministry. Let me give you a few examples. You've been praying faithfully and speaking boldly to your family that are unbelievers. You invite them over for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, and when you interact with them, you just look at the opportunity of sharing the gospel, reminding them why you're thankful and why you're celebrating Christmas. And and you know that, that as you leave that day and you're gone, they all start laughing and mocking because you're committed to your faith and you're committed to the gospel. It's discouraging, isn't it? How about, you know, you are faithfully serving in the sound booth, seeking to make sure the band sounds balanced and the preacher is crisp, but every time you show up, someone's been messing with your settings. And the microphones have all been moved around. You get frustrating. It's ministry. I'm here to serve. Why is this happening? Seems like every time you teach the children on Sunday morning, the moon has been full the night before. <laughs> You're trying to get some other mothers in the church to join you for a play date, but over and over again, when they commit, they pull out at the last minute. You're casually counseling a brother or a sister in Christ, and you've given them clear counsel from the Scriptures, but again and again they choose to ignore the Word. And now things are just getting worse. It's discouraging. You're standing before the congregation ministering the Word, but that morning you had a spat with your wife or you spoke harshly to your children. It's discouraging. And I could just go on and on just talking about little discouragements that we have, but these are little discouragements, or sometimes they're big discouragements that consume us. And so although we may have many things to be thankful about, it is the things that discourage us that tend to consume us to the point that we're ready to reach the react in anger or just to throw in the towel. Now, we know that Paul was struggling because of what we read in verses 9 and 10. God, Jesus doesn't speak into the situation into a vacuum when there's not an issue going on. When Jesus says, Paul, don't be afraid, what's a logical conclusion? Paul is afraid. Paul? <laughs> Paul is afraid? Yeah. It's amazing how discouragement, ongoing discouragement can just beat you down, even though there's lots of good things that are happening in your life. But the discouragement just beats you down and beats you down and beats you down to a point where you're just willing to be silent. Enter the ministry of refreshment. You see, the word of God that Paul receives from Jesus is both a refreshing command and a refreshing comfort. <laughs> see, these words that are, are spoken here by Jesus are, are not just kind of haphazard. They're, they're, they're drilling into a situation. They're drilling into a life. They're drilling into a key apostle who is just a man who can only endure so much. So we begin with this refreshing command. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Verse 9 teaches us that when we're afraid, our tendency is to be silent. Now friends, gospel silence is Satan's goal. So the Lord is commanding and encouraging Paul to not be afraid, but to go on speaking. That might seem like a small thing. Not when you're discouraged. 
Not when you've been beaten down so much. And friends, this is the counsel we need, isn't it? Satan has been extremely successful in silencing our gospel witness. And we as the church, by and large, have just allowed him to do that. We're told that we're not allowed to speak about Christ and the gospel at work, on school campuses, at family gatherings, and just generally people get offended if you bring up Christianity. Keep your religion to yourself, they say. But if you're a Christian, you can't help talk of Christ. I don't mean that you're preaching Christ all the time. But your calling is to live a life that is oozing Christ. He drives your thoughts and your motives. He counsels your wants and desires. He comforts your fears and your worries. He orchestrates your habits and the rhythms of your life. And so when your coworker asks you on a Monday, how was your weekend? Feel free to say, I had a great time with the ladies of my church learning how to study and understand the Word of God with care. And then on Sunday after church, we had a great time encouraging and being encouraged by our church family at a picnic at a local park. Oh, you can't say that, someone says. That's religion. No, that's my life. That's what I do. It's what I value. It's what I love. Why can't I answer honestly what I did this weekend? Everyone else can talk about concerts and ball games and car shows and camping trips and restaurants and protests and clubs. But somehow we've allowed ourselves to be silenced. Now, I understand the appropriateness and the inappropriateness of when and how and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? We've just allowed ourselves to say, I'm going to be silent. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silence. It's a refreshing command. Now, I am not suggesting that you go to work or your school campus and you stand up on a desk and you start preaching the gospel. I'm not suggesting here that you be obnoxious with Christ and the gospel, but I am seeking to encourage you to not be afraid and to keep on speaking, to live out your Christianity in a natural, friendly, engaging way that shows others that you love them, care about them, and are seeking to live a life for Christ. So what did you do this weekend? You know what? I spent time with my family and I went to church. I love going to church. And then after that, we had a home group and it was great. I'm really encouraged by what's going on. It's who you are. It's what you do. Don't be afraid. Satan wants you to be silent. I wonder if, if that's where we live. By default, we've just said, oh, we can't say anything. We can't speak up. Not only is this a refreshing command, it's a refreshing comfort because Jesus now gives a backdrop for that command. And it's wonderful. He says, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. Jesus says three things here to Paul to comfort and refresh him in his discouragement. First, he says, for I am with you. This is his presence, Christ's presence, for I am with you. Now, the reality is, friends, Jesus had been with Paul ever since his conversion on the road to Damascus. And then when he was in Damascus, Jesus was with him. When he was in Pisidian Antioch, as he preached to the men of Israel, Jesus was with him. As he was being dragged out of the city in Iconium, beaten and left for dead, Jesus was with him. Jesus was with Paul as he traveled through the various regions of Phrygia and Galatia and Mysia. He was with him in jail. He was with him when the mob was chasing him. He was with him when he stood at the Areopagus and he preached. Jesus was with him. And he's with him now in Corinth. See, Paul needed to be encouraged that Jesus was still with him. One of our favorite and the most comforting promises 
is that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. That is what Jesus said to the disciples as he gave them the great commission. I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth. And friends, this is our promise too. Jesus is with us when things are going well and we are encouraged. Jesus is with us when the burdens and trials of life are discouraging. Now hear this. The struggles and joys of life don't change the fact that Jesus is with us. He is with you if you're one of his children. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't kind of gotten upset with you so he's no longer talking to you. He's with you. And you can be sure of that. So when you're feeling lonely, like you're the only one that's going through this discouragement, you and I must fight to remember and to believe that Jesus is with us. And I say, Remember, but we also need to fight. There's a fight that we have in our heart to say, this promise is true. I'm going to believe it. Even though my circumstances are terrible. I will believe this to be true. Why? Because I know that it's true. It's just that my circumstances, my feelings, my perceptions, my struggle kind of are forcing me to not even open my Bible. But that doesn't change the truth of the promise. You ever been in that place? I mean, you're so discouraged. It's like just you open the Bible and you read, you're just like, ah, it's, ah, it's not helping. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus is with you. Paul needed to be slapped out of his fear and discouragement with that simple promise. And that's what the Word of God does sometimes. It comes and it slaps us lovingly, out of our despondency to say, I'm still here. I'm still with you. I haven't abandoned you. And if Paul needed that, to be sure you and I need that. Secondly, we have Christ's protection. No one will attack you to harm you. Now, unlike the promise of Christ's presence, the promise of Christ's protection is unique to Paul and unique to his situation. This is not a blanket promise for Paul, or even a blanket promise for us. Jesus says to him, no one will attack you to harm you. This would have been welcome news for Paul. As we've seen, Paul knew that he would suffer for the sake of Christ. He understood that kingdom progress would come through suffering. But what Jesus is promising here is a reprieve of suffering for Paul as he continued to minister in Corinth. Just look down, if you would, at verse 11. And you see the, the marvelous fruit of that promise. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. A year and six months without someone attacking you to harm you. Based on the things that he had been going through, that's a wonderful reprieve. It's a wonderful gift from Jesus to him. You know, we go to the Lord, we say, Lord, I, I, I just want to break. Been there before? Ever prayed that before? I just want to pause. It just seems like when one discouragement happens and kind of comes to the end, you wake up the next week and it's like, boom, here's a new one, right? And it's just like, Lord, just give me, just give me a few days. Give me a week. The Lord gives him a year and a half freedom to minister the word in the context of this city. Now, although this is a specific promise for Paul and Corinth, we can surely rest in the fact that nothing happens to us outside of God's purposes. We don't have the guarantee that we're always going to be safe or there isn't going to be an attack on us because we're followers of Christ. But whatever does happen to us is all part of God's design. We are in his care. We're in his hands. He knows what he's doing. And if he so desires to call us home, Paul talks about that in 2 Timothy, I can be rescued from the lion's mouth or I can be rescued into heaven. Either way, I'm willing to be rescued. Our Savior is fully aware and he's fully awake for everything 
that happens to us in our seasons of joy, in our seasons of trial, difficulty, and tragedy. He's working in us and through us all the time. And we can certainly rest in the fact that no eternal damage can befall us. So Christ's presence, Christ's protection. But then there's also Christ's providence here. I have many in the city who are my people. Now, I don't know where you are on the theological scale of you know, Reformed Arminianism, Calvinist, all that kind of stuff. But just you know, don't allow your ears to twitch too much here. Just read it for what it says. What does it say? I have many in this city who are my people. He's saying to Paul, there are people that I have chosen before the foundation of the world who have yet to come to me. I am drawing them. And Paul, I'm wanting you to do ministry here in Corinth and to draw these people now through the ministry of the Word because this is how I work. This is encouraging because Paul's looking at a city and he's saying a lot of horrible stuff out there. But in the midst of all that, God is at work drawing people through the ministry of the Word. Now, Paul could look back at God's providence in Corinth, couldn't he? And Luke wants us to see it. First of all, again, just kind of reflecting on some of the things we've already said. Providence through Claudius's edict, right? God worked his will through Emperor Claudius's edict to get Aquila and Priscilla to Corinth so that they could be there to be a help to Paul and to become some of his closest friends next week. Uh, um, Dennis is going to be preaching on a passage that deals with them. It's wonderful. It's all part of God's providence. Providence through Paul's departure from the synagogue. We see here that God's providence, when, when Paul departs from that synagogue, and what happens here is rather wonderful. It's kind of amusing even. After Paul departs from the synagogue, when the Jews continue to oppose and blaspheme, God provides a man by the name of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, and he invites Paul to meet in his house. And there he can proclaim the gospel freely, and he can continue on with the work of the ministry of the word. And Luke, wanting to drive home the power of the providence of God, says his house was next to the synagogue. Let's think about that. That's pretty intimidating, and it's pretty bold. You can walk up, you can go to the synagogue, you can walk up, and you can go to Titius' house where Paul is ministering the word. It's pretty bold. God's providence. Christ's providence. Providence through the conversion of Crispus. Crispus is the leader of the synagogue. He's not a rabbi. He's a leader. He's a, he's a guy whose role is to coordinate the religious and administrative affairs of that Jewish community around the synagogue. It was a prestigious uh, position. It was the kind of thing that we would say is it's kind of like being the president of, of, of maybe you know, some institution. He was well uh, uh, known in his community in that sense. And you can just imagine what happened that day when Paul says, enough. And he goes and he stands at the door of the synagogue and he shakes the dust off of his clothes and he says to them, the blood is on your hands. And Crispus, who's the leader of the synagogue, looks at his family and he says, as Paul leaves, his family gets up and they walk out the synagogue together. Can you imagine the impact that would have had? Can you imagine the scandal that that was? But do you see God's providence that even the leader of the synagogue comes to faith along with his whole household? Friends, this is God's providence along the way. Fourth, though, the providence through Gallio, the Roman proconsul. Now, we could have just, we could have breezed through this little section here. Or kind of scratched our head, what's going on here? Why is this here? See, Paul had experienced local mobs chasing him out of the, uh, out of the town before. Paul had experienced a local town council causing him trouble. But here, in verses 12 through 16, the local synagogues have joined together, hired their best lawyers, and brought Paul to the Roman court with the top dog of the region. See, this is Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. 
Achaia was the Roman region we would know as Greece. So it involved this whole region of Corinth and Sparta and Athens. And to be a proconsul in the Roman context was to be a very, very, very important man. Gallio was a, a career politician. His younger brother was called Seneca, and Seneca was the tutor of 12-year-old Nero. It just kind of gives you some relationship to understand how important this guy Gallio is in this context. So Gallio rules the entire region of Achaia on behalf of Emperor Claudius, and what Gallio decrees in a Roman rule of law will have impact on the furtherance of the gospel. Do you see how important verses 12 through 16 are to Christianity? Something done by a mob is forgotten tomorrow. Do you remember when people were marching a few years ago? The spirit and the tension in the air, people were storming and marching and people, things getting torn up. Yeah, we've forgotten about that already, haven't we? Something decided by a town council applies only to their town. But if Gallio decides against the gospel, then this will cause trouble across the whole empire. Why? Because it would be a legal decision. See, what, what are the charges brought against Paul as tribunal? That Christianity is illegal and it's unlawful. Surely then this is reason to be afraid. Surely this is a reason to be quiet, to not stir up a fuss because we don't want anyone to go to jail. We don't want, you know, something or people to be banished. It might result in me losing my job or getting kicked out of school or just not being allowed to even be in my country. We might think to ourselves that getting banned or being put in prison are the worst thing that can happen to the gospel. But ask the Philippian jailer if that's true. Friends, the worst thing that can happen to the gospel is silence. When God's people are moved by fear to be silent. And notice what happens next. Paul tries to open his mouth, right? (laughs) Don't be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. And as he's about ready to speak, what happens? Gallio speaks, and what he says will become a legal precedent across the known world. And Luke wants us to hear it. Gallio says, and I'm summarizing it all, I don't see anything illegal or unlawful here. Go back to what you're doing. I will not judge this. So this isn't simply a lazy man in a white toga saying, just go away. This is the Roman proconsul establishing law in a Roman court. This is legal declaration that would now allow Christianity to thrive across the Roman world. This is Christ's providence. Paul? Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Keep on speaking. And so these words would have been a comfort and a command that brought him refreshment. And they're the words that Paul needed in that particular moment of crisis in his ministry. I want to bring this now to a close. I have two things really to say as we bring this to a close. First of all, the joy of refreshment that comes from the word. God loves to speak to you in those times of trouble and trial and discouragement that you're going through. We might not think that the Word of God can really have an effect on us, but God wants us to see through this passage that the Word of God is essential for every believer, especially during those times of discouragement. And just just read along as I read Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. All these are descriptions that are talking about the Word of God and what it does. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Oh, friends, pick up your Bible. Allow it to have its way in you. Oh, you've got a lot of things to be thankful for, but when those times of discouragement are there, don't set the Bible down. That's the time you need to pick it up. Well, you should be picking it up anyway, right? But the tendency is to allow the discouragement just to stop you in your pursuit of Christlikeness. And Luke is sharing with us, look, don't do that. Don't stop. Don't be silent. Don't give up. Trust the Word of God to be the very thing that you need, whatever the trial is that you're going through. Trust that God uses the Word of God to bring revival to your heart, to reorient your, your, your focus, to get your weather vane from all, moving all the places and spinning around. It says, because it's through the Word of God that we see Christ. It's through the Word of God that we have the gospel reminding us again and again of what it has done, reminding us of the promises of salvation, that we are signed, sealed, and delivered as citizens of heaven. And that the circumstances we're going through do not undermine that. We need the Word. I could have just said, hey, I could have gotten up this morning and said, you know what? You just need the word, guys. Go home. But you see there's a context here, isn't there? All these wonderful things that are happening, great things, encouraging things. But there's discouraging things too. And sometimes the discouraging things are in the background. They're kind of bubbling. Sometimes they're in your face. But the Lord comes in the midst of those times, and he says, I want to speak to you. Jesus, friends, is still speaking to us through his word. And he's saying to us in a similar fashion, don't be afraid. Oh, I understand you're afraid, but don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Secondly, and I'm taking this in a little different direction, because you can come to this passage because you, you see Paul. This is about Paul. This is what Paul's going through. And there can be a sense in which you say, well, Paul was an apostle, and I am not. Everyone in this room, if that's you, raise your hand. So then, how do we take this, this commandment here to not be afraid of but go on speaking because Jesus is with us? How does that apply to all of us? We might understand how it applied to Paul, but what about the rest of us? So I just want to kind of just highlight some of the characters in this passage that really kind of frame some things that might be helpful for us. And I'm calling this partnership in ministry because of the word. See, first of all, there is Jesus. You say, well, he's not specifically mentioned, at least in this context. He is the one who's speaking, by the way. It's, it's his words. He is the one who's orchestrating the affairs from his place in heaven. And he breaks through and he speaks here. He's Lord and he still speaks today through his word. He is in charge. He hasn't stopped being in charge. And he's about rescuing people. So there's Jesus. Then there's Paul. And friends, Paul is our apostle. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. So that puts him in the same kind of position, puts us, I should say, in the same kind of position as Aquila and Priscilla and Crispus and Titus, Justice and Silas and Timothy. We relate to Paul as our apostle. Those who oppose Paul oppose God. Those who support Paul support God. So you must ask the question, do you support Paul? Do you support God? If so, what does that look like? Are you willing to pin your reputation, your house, your business, your support on him? Because ultimately it's not Paul. Paul is pointing us to one who is far greater than Paul. It's the point of the apostle is to preach the testimony 
of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. It's to point to him. So there's Jesus, there's Paul. There's Aquila and Priscilla. Are you, are you willing to use your business to further the ministry of the gospel? If you own your own business, is that one of the lenses that you look through to say, I want this business to glorify God? Not because it's void of things that a Christian should, shouldn't have, but that it has things that are clearly pointing to Christ and his gospel. I'll let you wrestle with what those things might be. But if God has given you the, the privilege and freedom of having a business, is it a business for the glory of God? Aquila and Priscilla certainly used their, their livelihood in that way, right? Silas and, Tim, uh, and Timothy, are you using your gifts of teaching, administration, and helps to further gospel ministry? They came along and they supported the Apostle Paul in the proclamation of the word. We might even say in the context of today, it's the congregation using their gifts to support the ministry of the word that's coming from the pulpit. Yes, ministry of the word continued on. Paul and Silas were those who actually did teach in various places after Paul was explaining. There's much more teaching going on. There's administration going on. There's logistics going on. All these things are happening. They're supporting the ministry of the word. Titius Justice. Are you using your home to further gospel ministry? That's something just we want to just keep hammering in our context. God has created the home to be a platform for ministry. Are you willing to open your home? Have people over, informally, just casually, with the idea of this is gospel ministry. Crispus, are you using your position in society to further gospel ministry. You know, here's a leader, and he had an opportunity, and he did. I want to show you one more thing just from this passage, just to bring this all to a close. If you read right at the end of our text, it's kind of a, it's really kind of a, a shocking verse, Acts chapter 18 and verse 17. Let me just turn there here. And notice what it says. This is after Gallio just basically sent everyone away. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to, the, to any of this. We don't know if it was the Jews that beat him. Likely it was. There could have been some Roman or some, some Greek presence there um, doing that. But he, we must assume then, took the place of Crispus in the leadership of the synagogue and going before Gallio, right? Now get your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. Verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and to our brother who? Sosthenes. Look, the ministry of the word always continues. <laughs> through trial, through difficulty, through God's refreshment. It's a pretty incredible Reality. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm making the connection here with Sosthenes because when someone mentions a name, those people know the name, they know the person, right? There's a connection there. Likely then was this same guy. This guy who was beaten for opposing Paul apparently now becomes a follower of Christ himself. The providence of God, presence of Christ, the promises of Christ, the protection of Christ. Friends, we need all this. Lord, help us today. Our life is full of wonderful blessings. Well, we live here in the United States of America. We live here in the Bay Area, Lord. We have the wonderful weather. We have wonderful lifestyle. We have so much going for us, Lord. We have finances. We have buildings. We have resources. And I know, Lord, there are some of us that have less than others, but Lord, compared to the rest of the world, we are so well-to-do. So much to be thankful for. And yet, Lord, in the midst of all that, we have so many struggles and discouragements that really 
choke us out and stop us from making progress in our walk with you. And so, Lord, would we, would we heed the instructions you gave to Paul to not allow our discouragements to silence us, to not allow them to, to cause this great fear so we would just stop speaking your truth, even hiding as if we're not Christians, but we kind of slip into church on Sunday. Lord, give us a freshness today. Give us a desire today to be your children who will speak, not be afraid, and not be silent. And Lord, may we lean on those promises for us, Lord, that you are with us, that you are fully aware of all the things that are happening to us, and Lord, that you are working providentially in our lives to accomplish your purposes. Lord, we need that anchor. We need that truth. We need that certainty. And Lord, ultimately, we need you. Help us now to live our lives for you in your precious name. Amen.